This is your home for St. Cloud State Hockey, keeping you up to date on the NCHC. Women's WCHA. Dana Rasmussen fires and she scores! Dana Rasmussen for the Huskies. The National Hockey League. Kaprizov in for a chance to win it. He scores! Thrill the thrill is for real! Welcome to the NHL, a game winner. And everything from the state of hockey. Cloud Cathedral is now 42.6 seconds away from wrapping up the school's first ever title. Welcome to the Huskies Warming House Podcast Den. Welcome into the Huskies Warming House Podcast, episode 160 here in the den. Noah Grant, Nick Maxson here, ready to bring you this show once again. And it's a little bit uh, later in the week, I guess. We're kind of in the middle of the week, uh, coming out here on Wednesday. So part of that is timing related to the Stanley Cup playoffs, the second round, of course, in full swing. And part of it is some personal scheduling things as, as well, too. So bear with us. Unfortunately, for the Huskies Warming House Podcast, uh our need to follow scheduling related to teams that we cover has dwindled significantly over the past couple of days. Yep. Yeah. So I uh, really, well, I would say for those who, you know, have an opinion on that, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think the only team that really, we kind of have a watchful eye on right now is really the Fargo force in the USHL. I think maybe them being heavy favorites and having a couple of St. Cloud state, both players and alums or future players and, alums uh yeah it's something that we're definitely keeping an eye on but as far as what we do have to talk related to st cloud as well a couple of player moves in the ncaa more specifically the wcha and also recently st cloud state and the women's hockey team were finally circling back and getting a chance to talk about them finally uh it's you thought the Minnesota Wild offseason was going to be interesting. This women's hockey team, I dove into some of the numbers recently, and uh, yeah, they have some work to do. There's no doubt about that. Just a mm-hmm. lot of turnover with that roster. Of course, we are going to talk about the Wild, uh, well, the Wild, of course, but also the Wild first round that we had around the NHL, not related to Minnesota. Uh, crazy upsets, head coaches who definitely don't mince words when it comes to discussing their teams if they happen to live a little bit north of the Canadian border. Uh, a lot of things that, to dissect from that first round that we're going to jump into. And then our extra ice session, we are going to talk about the Wild and their off-season plans and see what they have planned, of course, uh, with Bill Guerin, who has a very tough task ahead of him. So without further ado, we start, as always, with Center Ice View News and Notes and the Huskies Illustrated Weekly Round. Center Ice View News and Notes. Center Ice View provides you with the best coverage of St. Cloud State Huskies hockey from game notes, recaps, photos, and more. Go to centericeview.com. Illustrated weekly roundup here, Noah. And uh, shall we say uh, there's some drama north of the border and it's not with the Winnipeg Jets for once, uh, which we'll cover a little bit later uh, post uh, round one. It still might be. It still might be. But uh, this goes back to the Ottawa Senators. Um, 
Never did I think, Noah, especially for this franchise, that we would see a bidding war with the names that are associated with it. This has gotten a very interesting. Um, so I guess one name that has been folded around and has now made an official offer, and that is the Remington Group, and more importantly, um, Canadian actor Ryan Reynolds, part of that, you know, along with real estate mogul Christopher Brady. Um, has prepared a, a more than $1 billion bid to purchase the Ottawa Senators. Um, but so that one, not a surprise. However, what maybe is a surprise is, uh, you know, better late than never, I suppose, uh, hip hop artist and entrepreneur Snoop Dogg uh, has joined a businessman, Nico Sparks, to also put in a bid uh, to buy the Ottawa Senators. And for those who maybe are casual hockey fans, know uh, Snoop Dogg and hockey uh, seem like, you know, what the heck kind of moments. And if you've watched the LA Kings broadcast, he's been uh, predominantly shown. He's actually been on play-by-play a little bit uh, out there with that crew. He actually has a lot of fun with it. He's actually a very big hockey fan out there. So to have him involved in this, uh, number one, this is great for the league, right? Uh, But more importantly for the Ottawa Senators, who uh, shall we say have had their share of struggles over the last decade plus, uh, this is great for that organization, you know, if you're going to have a bidding war, uh, if you're going to have a couple celebrities, why not have it like this? This is awesome. Yeah, it's too bad you couldn't combine the groups together. I think that would be an interesting combination that brings a lot to the table here. You know, in Snoop Dogg. Like, in fashion, you, you can never rule it out. They may just, you know, come yeah. together and do it. Well, you know, you just wonder what the personalities are like. Do they do they match? Do they not? You don't really know. But uh, Snoop Dogg, yeah, for a lot of people who don't know, I mean, kind of the OG when it comes to like wearing hockey jerseys, when it comes to like hip hop and things like that. And really, yeah. like you said, has been a hockey guy for a long time, has been in the NHL EA Sports franchise as well, too, uh, with some voiceover things. He's done a lot of really cool things. Um, however, uh, I don't know how much of that expertise is rolled into managing <laughs> Ownership, you know, right? Yeah, ownership of an NHL franchise. I think when I look at this, not to say that it wouldn't be great, I, I think maybe just me feeling like Ryan Reynolds is maybe more equipped with his group to do that. But again, the majority of this could be controlled by Nico Sparks, and you know Snoop Dogg could just be kind of the face value name attached to that uh, and kind of generate brand interest. So I don't really know. What I can tell you is regardless, the NHL and more specifically the Ottawa Senators ownership group currently has a very great problem on their hands because regardless, it's going to be a win-win for all parties involved and it's going to be a massive injection of personality for the National Hockey League. And uh, last time I checked, uh, we're definitely under hitting in that regard. So uh, it'll it'll be good. Uh, yeah, so very good news up there in Ottawa. Um, speaking of other good news north of the border um, here in Ottawa, this is kind of surprising uh, also a little bit. The Flames, in agreement with uh, uh, essentially the province of Alberta, now mind you, this is a principal agreement, has finally apparently come to an agreement to replace the Saddle Dome. Uh, mind you, this is not that long ago, right? Uh, where the city essentially... Uh, essentially rejected a bit, I think, was that a year or two ago? Yep. And the reason was cost overruns. However, the city's, uh, shall we say, commitment to that was, what, $250 million? It's almost doubled by that. It's it's mm-hmm. So this is kind of interesting, but I, I think maybe what this signals, and we'll get to the, the, the details in a moment, is that I think maybe they're being more realistic about the cost. It did seem that that previous proposal was well under, uh, shall I say, realistic expectations of the cost of the stadium. Uh, so let's break it down, right? Uh, so not just 
the arena, right? It's going to be an entertainment district. It's going to include a community rink, uh, transit improvements. Uh, so this is essentially the new age, shall we say, arena, right? Is that it's not just the building. It's it's mm-hmm. essentially an entire district. At Arizona, if they pass their measures uh, later this month, right, we're going to be keeping our close eyes on that. Is an entertainment district arena being essentially the centerpiece of that? And uh, it's supposed to be costing around $1.2 billion dollars right 800 million dollars uh for the event center slash the whatever settle dome uh replacement would be um here's where the city kicks in right we talked about its earlier number 537.3 million dollars uh quite a bit more than the 250 that they had agreed in principal prayer uh and then the uh, csec um which i believe is the calgary sports and entertainment uh Counselor, their, their conglomerate, whatever yeah, conglomerate. it is. Yeah. Uh, they're going to provide 350, uh, $356 million, and then the province of Alberta will contribute $330 million, right? So uh, and here's the big part. So they've said that the, pro- uh, the project will not result in an increase in property taxes or new debt to the city. Uh, so this is good, right? But in the sense, again, you kind of figure what the switch was, right? Because again, it was cost overruns. It was, you know, things going up and then all of a sudden everybody walked away. And the number that we're reporting on today is a heck of a lot more expensive than it was just a couple of years ago. To me, it's not inflation. I think truthfully, and I'm going to grab your opinion on this, Noah, that this really was a more realistic into the numbers bid. That's probably more close to reality than what they probably said talked about a couple of years ago. Yeah, not set in stone either, right? I mean, they're waiting no. for the definitive agreement. So uh, I, is this Tempe 2.0? I don't really know. Um, but, the, you know, going back to this piece of, you know, the initial offer to now, maybe it just comes down simply to a little bit of transparency, like you mentioned, where all parties are being a little bit more upfront or a little more willing to negotiate and say, you know, hey, we're not trying to screw you over on one side of this or other. Let's work together. How can we make this work? Or maybe at this point where they're trying to create not only an arena, but an event center. And now the province, now the city is saying, okay, we can find value in that because not only is it going to help us with the Calgary Flames and that sort of venue, it's also going to give back to a community. It's going to create, you know, new job opportunities, new housing potential, things like that, Um, new tourism opportunities that are going to bring money back into the city and into the province. So maybe that was part of the change too. I'm not really sure, but I, I think. As you look at this, uh, I I don't even know if like $800 million, it it almost feels low (laughs) to me in some senses. You know, like new arenas now just feel like they just they approach a billion dollars on their own. And I feel like dollars, by the way. Yeah, yeah, true. (laughs) But but like I feel like the flames, uh, you know, you've been waiting 40 years for this new arena. So, you know, for them to kind of suddenly have this switch. The other piece of this, maybe COVID a little bit here. I know I think the original proposal was back around, you know, 2019. But maybe we're at this point now where they're seeing what economic detriment kind of looks like in that city and how they can recover and sustain regardless of that. And they say, okay, financially, we feel like we can be flexible now, given this you know recent circumstance that was kind of extreme. And now they feel a little bit more comfortable being more transparent, being more open about those things. So it's, it's a great thing if it ends up happening. I, I, I mean, the Saddledome certainly has a lot of character for Calgary, but at the same time, uh, it, it's time for them to kind of be one of those teams that makes the next move. It really is. And uh, for those of you who don't know, the settled on quite literally shaped like a horse saddle. In fact, was it the world's fair 
or the Olympics that what it was some big it was, event. It was, it was like 1980, wasn't it? Yeah, 1980 on the dot. Um, so the the there's a bit of a history. There's a bit of a you know, shall we say, a landmark to it. It's definitely the most unique stadiums I would almost argue in the entire North America, just because of its shape and its original intended use. But uh, it certainly has outdone its age. Uh, I know for media members, the the catwalk from one side of the rink over into the press box is kind of a rite of passage and uh, definitely we'll have to try to see if I can get up there for one final game uh, before that. And again, there's not been a set date. Again, there's no renderings available. This is still very early. All we know is that it sounds like they've agreed on a, essentially a budget is what it sounds like, but there's still many hoops to cross many uh, steps still to take. This is far away from being signed, sealed and delivered, Uh, but we'll keep our eye on that as we go forward. Right, Noah? Yeah. I'm trying to, um, figure out where the Settle Dome actually came from. Uh, of course, the Stampede Corral when the Flames, of course, don't forget the Flames came from Atlanta in 1980. Oh, um, that, right? So, uh, of course, they hosted the 1988 Winter Olympics, but um, that when it was built. It's weird because it fell below league standards in 1977, and then the Flames suddenly ended up getting there. there. Um, I, I think it actually maybe went back to that original Olympic bid years prior, though. Yeah. Um, you know, because of course the Olympics nineteen eighty eight, but you you submit the bids, you know, you well in advance, it. like yeah. a decade in advance. So, um, it kind of feels like, um, from what I can see, um, just a little bit of a marketing thing for the city to kind of help boost, you know, economic stability there too, and also maybe host the Olympics and kind of build on that as well too. So, um, if there's any Anything else anybody knows about the South Dome, we'd love to hear about it. But I think that's what I can kind of conjure up using everyone's favorite source, Wikipedia. <laughs> so always accurate, right? Never anything wrong there. Um, what we don't need Wikipedia for is another change in Calgary. They have parted ways with head coach Daryl Sutter. And uh, supposedly there's some reporting, maybe rumors going around that uh, Jonathan Huberdell was essentially very yes. vocal about uh, how they just did not see eye to eye with Daryl Sutter. Um what a change for Calgary in the last 12 months where right? you lose Johnny Goudreau, you lose Matthew Kachuk, uh, you bring in Jonathan Huberdeau, Mackenzie Weger, a couple of other players to essentially kind of retool on the fly because you kind of had to, right? Uh, the Flames did not make the postseason. Uh, and then now Daryl Sutter, um, after exit interviews, is out as the Calgary head coach. Is this surprising to you, Noah, or not so much? I don't really know. I, I, I feel like when you look at Daryl Sutter, he's just one of those personalities that just is who he is. I mean, he's like pure old school, pure farm boy kind of thing. I uh, um, quite literally. And I think that abrasiveness kind of rubs some guys the wrong way. Uh, mm-hmm. We think about it a lot with, you know, uh, guys that, you know, like Mike Keenan, for example, you know, guys that kind of ruled with an iron fish fist and it was their way or the highway. I feel like he's just one of those players. And if you're not used to that standard, if you don't like playing under that kind of standard, John Tortorella, another great example. If you don't mesh with that, I think you just, you get these differing, differentiating opinions here. I mean, you look at his uh, record though, um, where I was trying to find it. Um, I man, I just had it up, and I, from what I remember, I though, you work this episode uh, with all the the you know the on the spot fact finding. It's uh, well, it's kind of well, fun to watch the wheels turn from over here. <laughs> well, uh, let's see. Well, he, I mean, one of his records, from what I remember, since he's been there, uh, it was like he had almost twice as many wins as he did losses. Like it wasn't like his record was a poor loss, even with the season that the Flames had this year, missing the playoffs by two points. I mean, he was 
very successful in the position that he was in. He had great players, obviously, but he utilized and got a lot out of him. But maybe we're seeing that trend. I know Johnny Gaudreau, you know, has family pieces attached to that too. But you kind of wonder if maybe that was maybe an inkling too, or guys like Kachuk talking about how excited they were to go to Florida salary cap wise, among other things. I think let's keep that Taxes in perspective. And, I, yeah. Maybe 90 degrees in temperature yeah. difference. But maybe there is some underlying. It was kind of nice to get out of, you know, the chains a little bit and the coaching regime that was Daryl Sutter. I'm going to miss him because his press conference or ab- press conferences are absolutely legendary. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, and I think he's a fun personality regardless. He's just like the, the angry old dad that someone pissed off a long time ago. But I never um, got over it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think from what we've been hearing, I'm not as surprised as I was when I initially heard it. Cause it just sounds like maybe it just didn't mesh as well as we thought. Yeah. On the outside. But let me follow up with that because there's a bit of a gamble here, right? No. And that is, mm-hmm. you know, essentially Calgary, you know, first year under, you know, essentially a different looking group right now. I get it. It's easier to switch a head coach than it is to players. Again, you've got players that are locked up long-term now because of the return from Matthew Kachuk, uh, you know, essentially they're saying this is our team or this is our core. Um, again, and all of it, you know, indications would tell us that, you know, that core has voiced that they needed a change. Uh, but Calgary's in a tough spot here, right? Because uh, like you said, Daryl Sutter, his, uh, his track record against two, uh, two Stanley Cups with Los Angeles. Um, historically, he's been able to uh, get teams, uh, squeeze the most amount of talent out of them as possible while being very, uh, shall we say, staunch defensively. And um, let's just say this, you know, obviously we'll probably talk about this in a different show, but as far as who can replace and who is the, who's the best replacement for that, I'm not sure, you know, for the Flames, you're not going to fix this overnight. So this is a bit of a, shall we say a part of the project of a rebuild first now it's the players now it's the head coach yeah i like i said i just it's just a weird spot for this flames organization to be in um for a variety of reasons uh we'll have to see how they kind of respond moving forward to next season oliver shillington is supposed to be back next year of course he had some personal reasons that kept him out this year so that'll be a big addition on the blue line but uh yeah calgary not only their arena but their on ice product has a little bit of reshuffling that's happening and hopefully Maybe a little bit more transparency Transparency would help in that regard, too. So we'll have to see. We'll see. Um, moving over to other teams, uh, the Maple Leafs, the Senators, the Red Wings, and the Minnesota Wild, they are headed to Sweden in November. Stockholm's Avicii Arena. Um, four teams traveling to Europe for the first time in NHL history. Four teams make the same trip, and the first time the Maple Leafs have ever gone outside North America in the regular season. So... Uh, it's something to keep an eye on there. Um, currently, 21 players on those rosters from Sweden that are expected to take part from the four clubs. But, of course, some players potentially not with the clubs like Gustav Nyquist, for example, after we get the u- news from Marcus Johansson today for the Minnesota Wild. Changes a bit of things. Um, but right now, as it stands with the current roster, the Wild have the most with eight of them. So mm-hmm. uh, keep an eye on that. Uh, the Wild will actually have the last two games of the series. They will have the Senators on November 18th and the Maple Leafs on November 19th to close out the four-game set. The Red Wings play the Senators to open, and the Maple Leafs have the Red Wings in the middle portions of that tournament on the 17th. So, um, yeah, what a great little event. I, I think, you know, uh, Sweden, Finland, both really great hotbeds of hockey that we're starting to see. I mean, the Swedes that come over now, I mean, they are truly a powerhouse in the game of international hockey. I think that they've proved that, you know, far and away. So uh, great to see 
great to see uh, the NHL head back there again. Of course, don't forget, they're also headed to Australia this upcoming uh, year as well, too, with the LA Kings. So uh, it should be exciting. Uh, in other news, uh, former Golden Gopher Hudson Fashing, two-year contract extension for the New York Islanders, uh, 775000 average annual value. Good for him. Thought he was all right in the playoffs this year. And then injury-wise, um, I kind of want to talk about this one for just a little tad here. Normally, we don't for our injuries, but Andrew Cogliano, who, of course, the abs are done, but 35-year-old out indefinitely after a fractured neck from that hit by Jordan Eberle in Game 6. That was a nasty one. Um, are you are you surprised there was no supplemental discipline after that one? You know, yes and no. Uh, and I think the our opinions when we when we look at a play and there's certainly an injury. And I think whenever you whenever there's a neck injury, right? I mean, those are serious injuries. And you know, let's take it one step further. It could have been a lot worse, right? You know, especially mm-hmm. with the position he was in. Uh, now, granted, when we cover the NCAA's and when we cover shall I say, dangerous checks. So when when we cover different things in the NCAA, one of the big differences, and we talked to, again, our friend Mike Schmidt about this, is that it doesn't matter. I guess the the player receiving the hit doesn't bear any sort of responsibility on the hit, right? However, in the NHL, it's different. Um, They take into account that the game is fast and that if you, shall we say, put your body in a vulnerable position, that there is an argument to be made that some of the onus is on the player receiving the hit. Um, And this sort of kind of walks that line, right? Where it's, you know, is it really all in one person? Is it a bit of both? And and again, I think it's amplified because of the injury and again, the nature of the injury and the way that he went into the boards. Right. And I think we got to take a step back and I'm certainly not trying to downplay. I mean, this is a, you know, a terrible injury that, you know, not only could have, you know, had, more lifelong consequences, but could have ended his hockey career. Um, and we still, still, still may, may still very may, well, right. We yeah. still don't know uh, where this is going to play out, how the healing process is going to be. But uh, no, I think this is the ultimate question, right? When hits like this occur, I, I think this is where we visit some of those, shall we say rules, right? Because according to the rule book, the check was fine, but yet Cogliano you know, and I see your, your head going back and forth. But again, we say no, not that we agree or disagree with it, but that's how the rules are written. And in fact, the athletic did a pretty nice piece on it uh, to kind of break it down. That's like, you know, don't hate the play, but, you know, change the rule. Uh, I think my question to you is, does the rule need to be modified? Does it need to be changed? Because as it's written right now, no supplemental discipline. There's none to suggest that it will be coming. Uh, and you do have a very prominent veteran player um, that is out with a serious injury and, again, could be uh, a career-ending injury. Again, we don't know for sure, but it certainly was not a good one. Yeah, I think what I go back to is the fact that regardless of how the play ended up, Eberle's following the play and it sees nothing but Cogliano's numbers the entire time. You know, his real idea is to close that gap and try to tie him up along the wall, just kind of, you know, close that gap and see if he can force Cogliano just into a spot where he can't really do anything along the wall. Cogliano kind of a loose puck that he's trying to corral along the half hole and kind of turns back into the hit a little bit. Definitely didn't help himself by any means here. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I kind of feel like there maybe should have been a change. And I'm not saying he should have got three, four or five games or anything like that. But I just think when you're seeing numbers the majority of the way, even if your initial intent is to just close and not give heavy contact, if a guy doesn't see you or doesn't feel that pressure behind you, 
you know, it just it was the argument, right? Yeah, that is it, the NHL's argument, not to cut you off, but that is precisely the argument from Jordan Everly's side, which is, hey, I was actually in decent position to make a clean legal check that would have not resulted in an injury, just a little mesh on the boards. And at the last second, when I'm committed to my player, committed to the route that I'm taking, he turns himself into a vulnerable position. So really, at least I would say his argument is this is more or less on him and less on me. Yeah. Like I said, it's always kind of a gray area when you have plays like this, because like you said, it happens so fast. Um, The crazy thing is Colorado still played the rest of the night, which is kind of scary to think about, to be honest with you. But uh, yeah, I don't really know. Like I said, I just go back to the idea that anytime you know somebody's back is turned or partially turned, you just, you have to be really cautious about the play that you make or really kind of maybe have more of an emphasis on making a play with your stick as opposed to, you know, finishing your hit. I get it. It's the playoffs. You want to make sure that you're setting the tone. You want to make sure that you're not kind of leaving anything for granted. Um, I don't really know. I could have seen maybe a game for this. I kind of felt like it was just right on that line where, um, I mean, you give Michael Bunting three games for his slew foot body check. I felt like this one kind of, you know, at least towed the line a little bit kind of thing, but I'm it's not tough, really right. Yeah. It's really tough because I think from my perspective, right. And again, I'm not the czar of all refereeing or the rule book, right. That, that's Max Veach. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, you know, he's, he's got that thing locked down, yeah. uh, but a slew foot, the, uh, the player receiving the slew foot has literally no impact on that play. Whereas you could argue in this situation. And again, I'm not saying I'm right or wrong, but you can make an argument that again, the injury could have been avoided. Um, but you do have a valid point, right? Which is, you know, the emphasis is on that point. If you're trying to play it safe is on the stick, but this is also the playoffs. Playoffs are not in my book. If you are in a position like that physically uh, and you go to finish the check, I think playoffs are not. I think it still ends up the same. So I think we come back to the ultimate question right now is that does there need to be, I'm not sure if a modification to the rule or rewrite it, but does there have to be, I mean, how, how do we fix this, right? Because is, is this going back to like the like the half second rule, where instead of like de- defining what interference, like what a late hit is versus not, you're defining how much time the player with the puck has to make a correction in their movement before the hit is late. You know what I mean in terms of like where the hit isn't late, but now the onus is now no longer on the player making that sudden movement. Now it's on the attacking player or the defending player trying to finish the hit kind of thing. I'm not sure if it's a timing issue because again, the game happens so fast. And at the end of the day, you know, I'm not sure you can quantify that maybe is the best Mm -hmm. way to phrase it. Um, And we've seen this in rules written in the past. And then when you try to quantify something that's in the gray, it never ends up working the way that's intended. Right. We we've been doing this show for three years. What the heck is a catch (laughs) still? What the heck is off the NFL? I have no idea. Yeah, <laughs> no idea. Interference. I yeah. It's interesting, right? So, and I and I don't know. Like again, and I think we need to restate this, right? I'm all in favor of a rule change that will have an impact on a keeping the game safe, but also keeping you know it's a contact sport, right? That's the nature of the game. I'm just not sure with this particular um, play, right? Because every play is unique. That's the one anti-argument to have about those folks that say, oh, the suspension was three, but this is one. How the heck can you do that? Well, not every play is the same, right? And yeah. the NHL set that precedent when it's taken into account both skaters and what they're doing or what they're not doing, right? So to me, it's hard 
Um, yeah, it wasn't the worst hit in the series. I'll tell you that much. The worst no. one was Gail McCarr's hit. Um, yeah, that one was bad. Um, you know, objectively late, objectively, mm-hmm. you know, you can maybe argue intent to injure. So unnecessary. Like, Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. Um, I'm not sure what the answer is there. I don't know if there is an answer, right? Is it the chicken or the egg? Or is it that kind of argument? Or is it we, is it just an unfortunate series of events, mm-hmm. right, that culminate where um, a respected player, Cogliano, is, you know, out. Again, it, he's injured. Like you said, he played the rest of the game, so you kind of wonder, you know, what the extent of that injury is. You know, we hope he recovers uh, fully and can return to the ice, and that doesn't affect uh, not only his play, but also, you know, him off the ice, too. Yeah, wishing him the best of luck. Of course, the Avalanche are out. The Seattle Kraken are headed to the second round. They are actually getting ready to play tonight on Tuesday when we are recording this show. And we head on to the main portion of the show to start, actually, with some college hockey. Welcome into the main portion of the show here in the Huskies Warming House podcast. Nick Max and Noah Grant here for episode 160 on this Tuesday night coming out a little bit later than usual. We'll probably be closer, I would think, to maybe a little bit earlier next week. Um, I am moving next Tuesday, actually a week from today. So a lot of things kind of uh, in disarray in my life, uh, more than usual, um, as Nick would like Thanks to say. clarifying. Yep. Yeah. Um, between that and, of course, this is my last week of school and then graduation coming up. So just a couple of things that are kind of being finalized here. So um, we'll keep uh, listeners and viewers informed. But again, I would imagine um, no later than I would think Tuesday morning, probably next week, depending on what what things shake out. So hopefully we get back to normal a little bit, but we'll have to see. Um, what I can tell you though, is that this week we are starting, I believe on, uh, on Thursday, May 4th, the Fargo force, of course, start their journey in the USHL playoffs against the Lincoln stars. So keep an eye on that one. If you're a Huskies fan, there's a lot of intrigue for a variety of reasons in that. And the USHL playoffs along with the NHL and AHL are kind of the last main group here to kind of continue to wrap things up uh, in the U S side of things. Uh, of course, you have the Canadian Hockey League playoffs, uh, Memorial Cup stuff as well, too. But uh, yeah, keep an eye on those Fargo Force. I think they really have a chance to do some damage. So um, as far as NCAA player moves here on the men's side, we only have two here are coming from the NCHC. Omaha picking up Zach Erdahl from Wisconsin, and they lose Caden Bolson on the other side. So um, And then Cooper Moore. I don't remember if we mentioned this. We did know that, of course, North Dakota was losing all of their defensemen. So I can't remember if we did mention this or not. But uh, Cooper Moore is headed to Quinnipiac from North Dakota, which Quinnipiac had kind of a cool little uh, exchange, if yeah. you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, the New York we'll Stock see. Exchange and and their little event that they had out there. So, um, uh, of course, the Bobcats like we've covered before, winning their first national championship in school history, beating the Gophers 10 seconds into overtime. But yeah, so for Omaha, um, if I can do math and figure out how the alphabet works here, questionable. Uh, Erdahl, coming from, Wisconsin, yeah, coming from Wisconsin, uh, sophomore last season, played in 34 contests, had six goals, five assists, and 11 points. So not a bad little pickup for Omaha, trying to supplement some of that uh, offense that was lost. They've now added five from the transfer portal. They lose Caden Bolson, the junior forward, uh, who had three points in 26 games. So really, I mean, pound for pound, you're kind of matching the loss that you just had from Caden Bolson, so a nice little pickup for Omaha in that regard. On the women's side here, uh, we start in Duluth. A lot of players from Bemidji and Mankato finding new homes. Uh, Bemidji losing a lot this week that they did. finally found uh, homes, so to speak, here. Reese Hunt 
uh, headed to Duluth from Bemidji. Uh, and Reese, of course, coming into uh, the season, a senior last season, 36 contests, six goals, six assists, 12 points on the forward side. So not a bad little pickup for Minnesota Duluth in that regard. Uh, goaltender Suzette Foucher is headed to Mankato um, and Minnesota State from Franklin Pierce. Um, I don't really know a whole lot about Franklin Pierce. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, uh, junior last season had five contests, a 3.57 and a 9.27. Um, again, strength of conference is the biggest question mark when it comes to that. But uh, don't forget Mankato losing two netminders, Califrank and Emerald Kelly, both um, a senior and a junior. So the goaltending position is a question mark for Mankato moving forward in that squad. Ohio State uh, adding Kira Zanin from Penn State. Um, they continue to kind of load up with players that are extremely good. Uh, junior forward, uh, 26 goals, 23 assists, 49 points. Average. Yeah, in 38 <laughs> games. Uh, former <laughs> Team USA U18 player. Um, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that I, I'm just going to say it right now, and this is no offense to St. Cloud or anybody else. I would be highly, highly shocked if Ohio State is – at minimum, not in the Frozen Four, and probably not winning a national championship. Like they are just a so this is about the Gophers in the men's side last September. Look what happened there. So, well, I mean, they did the first part. <laughs> I <They> did. <laughs> um, but the only other news in the WCHA, actually, the Huskies adding a pair of transfers here. Taylor Larson, uh, defenseman from Bemidji State, played in 34 contests last season, a sophomore, more of a stay-at-home defenseman, did not register a point last year. And Maddie Peterson, uh, the senior forward, had six goals uh, for RPI last season. So uh, two pickups for this women's hockey team here. And let's jump right into it. Our women's hockey coverage here on the Huskies Warming House podcast has been long awaited, kind of because it's really difficult uh, sometimes to get a little bit more information on the women's side, especially like for uh, recruits, incoming freshmen. We're kind of probably still months away from hearing that news here. It's it's not as readily available at times uh, compared to uh, some of the men's side of things. Uh, congr- uh, thanks to Sid Wolf and uh, people like that, that really kind of put in that due diligence to kind of do some deep digging on some of those things. Cause it's, uh, the women's side is just a much more challenging realm to get information from, I feel like. But uh, here's kind of the details here, Nick. Uh, diving into the numbers, it's not great. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, McKenna Westlow, Yanina Newland, Tatum Geyer, uh, all fifth-year players, they're all done for sure. So two forwards, yep. one defenseman. Uh, between the three of them, 39 points last season. Uh, as far as seniors that are left on this roster, Allie Cornelius was a redshirt senior last year. Clara Himlerova, Taylor Lynn, Addie Scribner, um, all kind of seniors with decisions, so to speak, have not seen any NWHL, um, you know, PHF, no news like that. Uh, we're probably about a month away from that uh, contract signing period-ish where we'll start to hear a little Pretty bit close, more. Yeah. more. Um, 73 points between those four. Um, the Huskies losing eight transfers with a combined 37 points between them, five forwards, two defensemen, one goaltender. The four seniors, by the way, are all forwards. And the Huskies just gained one forward and one defenseman with a combined six points total that they gained back in the aggregate. So what does that mean? Uh, in total, the Huskies are losing 149 points and adding six uh, back if you want to know how that math shakes out, they had 217 combined points among players last season. 143 points means that they are losing 66% of their scoring. Um, they are also losing 
for sure. Um, 11 to 15 players, potentially, depending on where the seniors go with the additions in the transfer portal that turns in aggregate, losing nine to 13 bodies at this point, uh, losing for sure seven forwards, three defensemen and a goaltender, potentially 11 forwards, three defensemen and a goaltender. And then, of course, getting a forward and a defenseman back. Oh, I mean, that is almost two-thirds of your playing day roster Mm -hmm. that is disappearing. Now, to be fair, in the transfer group, I would say maybe about a third to half of them were players that didn't see a lot of ice time or were not known as offensive producers, so to speak. Um, So a little bit of a glimmer of hope. I really – I wouldn't be shocked to see – to see St. Cloud's coaching staff really push hard with this senior group of four players and say, can you give us one more year? Now, I don't know what the freshman group looks like. They might have a very big freshman class waiting in the wings mm-hmm. um, that is ready to step in and kind of start that, not a rebuild, but kind of that that infusion of when you're losing, you know, nine to 15 players, potentially, that's... <laughs> the Wavel babies. Yeah, definitely. Seriously. Um, do you think that this team makes a big push to hang on to, you know, Ali Cornelius, Clara Hilmarova, Taylor Lynn, Eddie Scribner? I mean, uh, obviously play alone, I would want to, but do you think that there's, how about this, a possibility for all four of them to return in a Husky sweater? There's a possibility, but I think, you know, again, you know, the big external factors, right. Are they getting pro offers? Right. Because we all know on the men's side, right. Uh, when you get those offers, uh, and I think Brett Larson has said this essentially to his players in passing, right? And that is you don't get an opportunity to play pro hockey every day. Uh, so when you get that opportunity, you kind of have to jump on it, right? So to me, that's probably the bigger, shall we say, concern if you're the Huskies coaching staff is do they get an offer that they like um, that they just can't say no to? And maybe to the player, right? Do they do they see themselves as hockey players post their collegiate career, right? Do maybe they do get offers? Maybe they look at it and go, "Well, maybe the pay is okay, but I can maybe only do it for a couple of years." It's you know sort of that whole outlook sort of thing. It's it's hard to say, mm-hmm. right? But I think there's a there's a chance there. But I, I think where this comes back to is there's a lot of people screaming at wildest turnover, right? You know what what's going on here? And the simple answer is Brian Idelski. It's mm-hmm. that simple. Um, Granted, we saw with the change in play, the players that bought in and the players that didn't. Uh, Bailey Burden was a forward that was on the squad for the first semester, then all of a sudden disappeared from the roster, and I haven't been able to figure out what happened with that. That was something that yeah. was kind of quiet. And is in the transfer portal. So Yeah, is in the transfer portal. So uh, this is not uncommon, right? Just because when you have a new coaching staff, and again, we've discussed it on the show, uh, about what changed, right? And Brian Adolski simply held up a mirror. He just said, mm-hmm. hey, this is on you guys. You know, you, you've told me what your concerns are. You've told me that you want to win more, but then the reality is we need to make changes and those changes, the effort comes from you ladies, right? And it's the culture shock that needed to happen. This is a result of that. I do think it's sort of a one-off, right? You know, when you have... Um, shall we say, 
what, what's the what's the word an equilibrium right where if you're a player this is how things have worked and you're comfortable with that and then someone comes in granted the results are much better right but you're still maybe this is not what you thought or wanted that experience to look like it, it's almost i don't know maybe the word we're looking for is players who became complacent in their role and hadn't Possibly. been challenged in that you know yeah yeah, lineup card for a while. Yeah, and we've seen it with Idalski, right? He was not shy about moving players up and down the lineup. He wasn't shy um, uh, about essentially being upfront and honest about the situation. And uh, again, from what we know, and we're not saying we have the firm details, but it sounds like a pretty stark contrast to uh, essentially the the staff that was before him, right? So uh, there's a chance. Uh, I think we talked about the external factors, but the the other thing is they have to believe that, you know, it's worth it for them, right? And, you know, what does that freshman class look like? Is there enough talent there? Uh, again, Taylor Larson coming in from Bemidji State, she was, uh, unfortunately, during my Hockey Day Minnesota call, she was the one that unfortunately had that, you know, that emergency on the bench that, you know, had to pause there for about 15, 20 minutes. And so, but a great player, she skates well. Um, when you put that picture together, and you're going back to these seniors that have decisions that they can or maybe have to make. That's the sales pitch, right? Is yeah, you, we need you one, but also we want you, right? We feel like, yeah, there's been some turnover, but what the girls we have coming in, we've elevated the bar. You're a big part of that. Uh, let's do it again because we can still take another step forward and you'll be a big reason because of that. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult puzzle, but ultimately it come down to uh, each lady's ambitions, uh, each lady's wants and whether they feel like it's something they want to do again. I think there's a good chance, but again, these are always very difficult off seasons to predict post essentially a change at the top that had um, even better results at the end, but knowing behind the scenes, even bigger changes were happening that essentially rocked the ship for lack of a better term. Yeah. Uh, this team, one of the best in St. Cloud women's history though, um, 18, yeah. 18 and one in the season, 11, 16 and one in conference play, uh, Oh, two and one in overtime. They were 15, four and zero when they scored first. So if they got a good jump, which is something that we hadn't talked about often for this women's program in the past couple of years. I mean, think about that. Uh, the Huskies had 19 games in which they scored first and, you know, put that in perspective, they played, you know, 37 contests, essentially half of them, they scored first. I mean, that's a great it's start a for this. Over the year prior, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and even better improvement over the year prior to the year yeah. prior, uh, three, 14 and one, of course, when the opponent scored first. So again, you know, obviously I think the next step is, you know, what makes good teams great is, uh, as some people kind of mentioned, uh, is that, you know, you almost got to be like too dumb to realize you shouldn't be able to claw your way back into a hockey game. And that's what really good teams do is they, they kind of level out that statistic when the opponent scores first, or when they're trailing after one period of play, they still find a way to come back in a hockey game. That's what, you know, that next step is where it's like, they have the ability to claw themselves out of, uh, you know, a, a hole that they've dug for themselves for whatever reason. Um, when they've outshot their opponent this season, Nick, they did it 12 times. They didn't lose a single game. Uh, when they were outshot six, 17 and one in the season, they were four and five in one goal contest, which again, you're almost 500 in that matchup. I mean, that's a basically, a yeah, basically a 50, 50 flip of the coin. You'll take that eight and eight at home, seven, 10 and one on the road and three and zero oh at neutral sites. Uh, of course, uh, their pairwise points percentage was actually a 524. They finished in the top 16 in the country this season, which 
Um, I'm going to say that again. They finished in the top 16 in the country this season. Uh, yeah, not too shabby. Um, when they led after one period of play, they were 10-2-0, after two periods of play. When they trailed, polar opposites. They only won one game when they trailed after either of those periods. Um, when they were tied after the first, they were 7-6-1, but after the second period, they didn't really close very well, so 1-4 and four in the season. And that's... Uh, you know, and that's really the next step, right? Is that mm-hmm. you see the trend, which is if we're in control of the game, we can essentially take it home, right? We can get the win. Now it's if things aren't going away or maybe we're having a rough start, can we, you know, essentially take a step back? Can we take a breath? And then can we just keep fighting and find a way uh, not to chase the game? We usually don't want to chase, but how can you tilt the ice in your favor, um, play the game that you know can win and just, you know, take a shift by shift and then get back in the hockey game. Um, But still a lot of progress being made, especially on some of those metrics. Again, you can't, you know, rewrite an entire script overnight, but the parts that they have rewritten quite impressive, especially year over year um, from this year to last year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Minus one goal differential in period number one. They were actually uh, plus three in period number two. And I think minus, uh, my math is very poor, um, quite obviously, minus nine in period number three. And then they did not um, score in overtime in two tries this season. Uh, Minus nine total goal differential this year. Outshot nine or outscored 96 to 87. They were outshot by a about 350, 375 shots this season. So still not controlling possession the way that we'd like, but a much better improvement. I will say this though, Nick, 20% on the power play, 20 for 100 on the nose this yeah. season and 86% penalty kill. PK. Um, I think yeah, so I need to coach teams. the wild on a few of those, especially the PK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Not great. Uh, you know, overall in the season though, um, you know, a 2.35 goals for and a 2.59 goals against, I mean, that's, you know, we're getting closer to 500 and being serviceable in that regard. So you'll definitely take that again. Like I said, still outshot by about an aggregate of 10. Um, so um, yeah. And they were a very, um, unpenalized team compared to the other teams that they matched up with. As far as uh, players that were uh, a very big component of this program, Yanina Newland paced the team 28 points for her in 37 games. Clara Hemlerova, 26 points. Emma Gentry, <laughs> what a great what a addition. Yeah, no kidding. Um, yeah, 22 points for her this season. Taylor Lind, you'd like to see her back. Think about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, between Taylor Lind and Emma Gentry, there's 44 points. And then if you add Clara Hemlerova, you're at 70. So, uh, those three coming back would be very good. So, yep. um, yeah, Grace Wolf had a really great season from the back end, by the way, 18 points and 37 contests for her. So, and then Addie Scribner rounds out that group as well, too. So, uh, yeah, the Huskies, if they can retain some bodies and have one freshman who can assimilate very well, maybe another transfer portal pickup or two, and a couple of these seniors staying um, would really help. Something that is not going to hurt them at all. The goaltending tandem, uh, yeah. Very good this season. Uh, both netminers appeared in 20 contests in some regard. Both had nine wins in the season. Uh, Jojo Choback had seven losses and a tie. Sonia Hola lost 11 this season. Um, 
uh, between the two of them, 2,203 minutes, uh, a 261 goals against between the two of them, six combined shutouts, uh, just under 1,100 saves and a combined 920 save percentage. Each netminder actually carrying a 923 over the course of the season. So how that math works, I don't really know, um, but apparently it does. So we're not with you tonight. You're using the math guy. What's what's happened? I am looking at the stat sheet and it says Joto Chobak 923. It says Sonia Hola 923. And it says the totals are 920. So I don't know if we have a third netminder that's not showing no. up because of games played. But I and maybe the other one was Julia Bacchetti and she didn't suit because she was redshirted. Yeah, um, I'm just I'm, I'm staring at the sheet and that's what it's telling me. And I'm. Um, I'm I'm too dumb to challenge otherwise. I think let's just put ah, it that way. Um, yeah, now the crux of the issue comes out, doesn't it? Uh, the Huskies finished fifth in the WCJ this season. I uh, had 36 points on the year. Um, they were six ahead of Mankato um, and a pretty far cry away from Duluth, who pulled away at the tail end of the second half of the season. 429 winning percentage in conference play over 28 contests, like we mentioned. Um, as far as oh, it doesn't have the actual. Um, winning percentage over the season um essentially they're they basically 500 plus a tie so uh all in all this team had a great year uh but looking forward what do you think the plan is for brian adolski janelle sergey and the rest of the coaching staff what do you think the plan is to alleviate this ginormous roster turnover because it's it, brian adolski has implemented his standard mm-hmm. we all know what it is now the question is now, how can they get everybody up to speed and feel like they can put a team on the ice that's going to be able to execute that and have a repeat or better season? I don't think you do anything differently, and here's why. Uh, Brian Idolsky, when he first walked into that locker room and said, you know, hey, girls, look around the WCHA. Who are we going to talent? And they, it was like, well, nobody. Well, let's be honest, right? But then he asked the follow-up question, who are we going to work? Mm-hmm. Right? And Honestly, it's no different this season, right? And that is, you certainly have talent now. You've certainly got, I think, better talent. But I think more importantly, especially in today's game, right, you have to be able to at least have the effort. Now, that was his big thing was, yeah, execution here and there. I think all coaches point on that. But the big thing he stressed this season is, I want you to put 100% effort on that ice all times. And it doesn't change this year. And I think... At the end of it, the Huskies showed resiliency. Um, they showed that when they stick to the structure that they could win. They had a winning formula. And they didn't need you know, the best talent to do so, right? Now, granted, in the WCHA, um, you know, granted, they won against Wisconsin. They won against the Gophers. Uh, they picked up essentially some big, shall we say, program shifting wins yeah. this year because of the way they played right and, and like we said sorry to cut you off and i want to let yeah. you keep rolling but 18 18 and one they lost six of their first nine yeah yeah and so at the end of it, it you know and you knew there was going to be you know some growing pains right but then after they kind of got through that uh this team it surprised the masses but again as i called their first series with rpi it was no surprise it was immediate change in my eyes on that squad on the ice, it was immediately um, known that this team was different. Now, granted they want to keep building up. Right. But to me, that means you, you keep the train rolling the way it is. You're going to win with effort. You're going to win with a strong special teams, which they had. Again, we mentioned the numbers, their PK 
holy cow, right? A sh- just a couple shades under 90%. Um, that's been their specialty, their power play over 20%. Um, and then now, you know, can you get some maybe more offense, right? I think we see that his commitment is to defense first. He's essentially said that that is our game plan. We're going to defend really well. We're going to protect our house. And then we're going to find a way to transition the other way and then make them uh, work on their defensive end, right? That's the next step. But still, fundamentally, it's the effort. Um, and him, the execution of his systems, that's what's going to be in year two. Yeah, I'm excited to see where this group goes. And I'm excited to see over the long term where they end up because, uh, you know, it's it really, it's kind of almost like the transfer portal a couple of years ago. It's going to take probably a good four or five years before we really get the full scope of where we're at related to the shockwave that is these giant roster changings and this, and this coaching change. So uh, this women's program um, definitely uh, get a ticket would be a uh, must watch yeah. hockey. I think next season can also use your support. I, again, one of the best teams in program history and the attendance barely peaked over 400 for any of the games. And it's just, it's just asinine. It drives me bonkers. Well, um, let's, let's say this right Noah, And that is, What's, what's, it's not a secret, right? This this program has, shall we say, not been giving, uh, shall we say, the fans um, reason for interest. I, I think that's fair to say, and I'm not putting it in on one particular coaching staff or a particular group of players. Unfortunately, this program's had a long history of that. So it doesn't fall on any one individual, any one group. It's, it's been sort of, shall we say, the MO, right? And I think part of the reason why we're seeing this huge roster turnover is that Ronowski laid a nuclear bomb in this program, not in a bad way. He just simply said, hey, the men can win here. Why the hell can't the women win? And he showed that it's possible. right? And he, and he showed it before at North Dakota, too. He's already yeah, built a did. template like that. He built a template. And not only that, he took, you talk about non-traditional hockey, Mark. He took uh, Team China, right, who trained actually here in the Twin Cities in Duluth and Basically, it brought them to prominence on the international stage, right? Set essentially an Olympic record for the best PK over 90% during that tournament. Um, so he's shown that he can take players that are committed, that want to win, that want to follow a system, and he can make that team buzz, right? And so with that, sometimes comes tough conversations and tough habits being changed. And he did that and he stood his ground, right? That's not an easy thing to do. But on the on the flip side, back to the fans. Now the fans need to respond, right? Which is this team is heading in the right direction. This was a fun team to follow this year. Again, um, it was almost as fun as following uh, essentially St. Thomas sometimes in the <laughs> CCHA playoffs and wondering what yeah. they're going to do because ironically, they're kind of similar, right? Which is, you know, they're kind of the underdog that has some shiny moments here and there. But the one difference for St. Cloud is now it's just a different brand of hockey and more so, you know, I think the the ceiling's higher for this squad. I really, really do. Yeah. And I think if you're, you know, a hockey fan, especially a St. Cloud State fan, go out and support this squad. They could use it. The Herb Brooks, I mean, it's a character rank. Put some butts in the seats, man. Go follow this squad. Because, yeah. you know, home ice advantage, it's a thing. Talk to any players played at that level. If you put some asses in those seats, I'll tell you what, this team with that support could be even stronger next year. It's, 
especially with the double headers, no excuse, you know, no excuse 100%. to not be at, be at those games. So especially even if you can't make them all on the weekend, for sure. on a Saturday, if you can make it um, definitely could use your support. I I'm surprised speak- that St. Cloud, not, not to interject, yeah. but I'm surprised that St. Cloud doesn't offer like a group, like a, like a group package for those, like at a, at a discounted rate, yeah. you know, just, just to fill the seats, right. For both. Yeah. I mean, why not? I mean, Maybe I'm no economics, you know, professor, but even if you chop off five or six bucks here and there, at least you're putting some money back into St. Cloud rather than zero and having empty seats. I mean, that's just yeah. me. But. Or, may, or maybe if you go to both games, you get like a free popcorn and a free drink or something like that. Just something to kind of voucher to yeah. dominoes. I mean, you could build marketing strategy. We should take over the marketing strategies for St. Cloud. We We shouldn't. <laughs> We can hardly handle ourselves. Uh, we'll get Caleb JP body to to head it, and then we'll just be, you know, yeah, well. yeah. Every advertising campaign we do would be in all caps. That would be fantastic. Um, It'd be me getting you know smoked in the face by a metal folding chair and a wrestling mat somewhere in the middle of the herb. Okay, you had lost me, and now you're bringing me back around the center. I'm thinking we should do this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I see uh, the opportunity now. I know. <laughs> speaking of getting hit with a folding chair, though, how about the first round of the NHL playoffs here? Let's talk about that. Holy cow! Yeah. Um, well. Why don't we start with the first thing that's on my list anyway? Obviously, a lot of upsets going on. How about the earliest exit here in the playoffs? Are the Winnipeg Jets out relatively early here? Uh, Rick Bonus did not mince words when he talked about his teams and the effort that they gave against Vegas in that final game. A lot of people thought it was kind of classless, including some of the players, former captain Blake Wheeler and things like that. Um yeah, exactly. And Nick, you and I talked about this pre-show. I don't think either of us had a problem with him being bluntly honest. And I think that's what Winnipeg needs. And you and I also talked about this pre-show. The glaring comparison was the Minnesota Wild team of yesteryear, 2017 and 2019. Like you mentioned, that specific, that first team, especially. Basically. Yeah, a core that was a bunch of prima donnas that the GM didn't want to get rid of. And it's starting to cost them. Well, and I think, let's clarify, right? For those who follow coaching and shall we say media strategy, right? Uh, we're okay with Wick bonuses because we understand that that was a strategic thing that he did, right? It wasn't like this is freewheeling and you know he's just running his mouth. Any NHL head coach, and I would even argue Tortorella was really good at this at mm-hmm. times, right? Was you understand, especially nowadays, that whatever you say, whatever you do especially at that level, it's going to, your players are going to see it. Obviously they did. Right. And yeah, no, he, that was a, that was a, a laser guided bomb directly aimed at that locker room. I'm not as shocked and nor, I don't think you would be at the, the, you know, that the jets lost to the, to the golden Knights, but I think in the way that they did, and again, I think Rick bonus had a head on, right. And that is this team when it went down the, you know, the way that it did, and maybe was it because, you know, they thought that maybe they had a chance in games three and four to make it a series and they just couldn't get a bounce? Sure. But like you said, there was no pushback. It wasn't like, okay, well, sometimes hockey's a bounce, right? Ask Ryan Hartman in game six, right, about a bounce um, and the Minnesota Wild, right? Sometimes that's just the way the game works and you have to sort of put it behind you. You have to have that short-term memory. Um, now, the curious part is, and I think we talked about this before, Noah, what is... What's the next move, right? 
Kevin Shabel day off, I think bears a lot of blame on this. Um, and again, our comparison to the wild, I, w- I don't know if the wild's core in whole was a prima donna, but certainly Suter Parise. We, we mm-hmm. all know that those reports are out there. They seem to be pretty vindicated right now. Um, and but, yeah, and that cross check from Ryan Reeves to Suter yeah. again starts to make a heck of a lot more sense. A little now, bit, actually. right? Yeah. Um, and I and I think also too, right? The, the other comparison is you know Chuck Fletcher saw a core that he believed in, even though failure after failure didn't want to rattle the cage, make even sometimes one trade, right? Sometimes one trade is enough. He didn't make any. Cheval Dayoff with Winnipeg has done the same thing. He's stuck with the same core. Are they all good hockey players? Sure. You know, but at the end of the day, this group, this chemistry isn't getting it done. And after coaching changes, Paul Maurice, remember Paul Maurice left in the middle of last season because he felt like they needed a new voice. Then they bring in Rick Bonus. What more can Winnipeg do beyond changing the roster? I think they're at the point where their hands yeah. are tied and they have to make changes. Yeah, Blake Wheeler, Mark Shifley, all those guys. Got Pierre-Luc Dubois headed to Montreal. There's no doubt about it. Nikolai Ehlers is a question mark. Connor Hellebuck wants to win now. You listen to his uh, conference. Yep, yeah. he definitely wants to be out of there too. So, um, yeah, I had no problem with it. I mean, kudos to him, honestly, for having the you know the goal to – be able to say that I, I like said yeah I like the transparency you know from a head coach who's you know laying it out point blank that organization definitely needs um, rejuvenation but again as we talked about with the Chicago Blackhawks I have no problem with a central division opponent struggling there's no issue with that um, until uh, I like Hunter Bedard then no bets are off <laughs> yeah no kidding um, well. How about another Central Division foe? The defending Stanley Cup champion Colorado Avalanche ousted in seven games by the Seattle Kraken, who scored first in every game of the series. This is the lesser of the two upsets from that night in question. Um, sounds, like a, that, right? <laughs> sounds like that, right? Sounds like a, a jury testimony. Um, but yeah, this Avs team uh, did not look like themselves. And I think people don't realize how good a, of a defensively sound team Seattle actually is, and Grubauer stood on his head with a couple of great A saves, yeah. and to see him beat the Colorado Avalanche, I'm excited. Good for Seattle. Again, it goes back to the the principle of as long as they make it far but don't actually win the dang thing, I think everyone's happy, right? Like, Yeah, you know, a couple of things, right? Colorado created chances, right? You know, they had a plenty yeah. of great A chances. Grubauer stood on it, you know. Yeah, McKinnon had 10 shots. Yeah. How about that for Grubauer? Uh, basically, essentially with the expansion drive, I was told, you're not helping us win a cup. He didn't, right? Darcy Kemper did, but then he was gone after a year. I wonder what was going through his head, you know, in game seven. I bet there was some motivation uh, in between, uh, you know, his pads and, uh, you know, his goalie mass to, to be able to have a great game seven. But to your point, Avalanche also injuries hurt them, right? Uh, no Landeskog, no Nachuskin. Uh, which is also a separate conversation we can have at a later time. Um, again, you had McCarr suspended for a game. It just felt like this Colorado Avalanche squad, although they still were dangerous, they just weren't the same, right? They just didn't have that same ability to take over a game and more importantly, make people pay with the scoreboard, right? Um, McKinnon, wow. Uh, I think he had a wonderful game seven. We talked about this with Kaprizov last year. did, I think, everything he could have done. Uh, but Seattle, again, Beyond that top line of Ranton and McKinnon, um, Colorado didn't really have any depth scoring. That's the big difference between this year and last year. Remember last year, Nazem Kadri, uh, Nachuskin, uh, Darren Helm, right? We're all contributors. We didn't really see that this first round in Seattle. 
just steady, right? There was a steady mm-hmm. and then the opp- opportunity. How about Oliver Bjork strand uh, with two goals to, to seal that. Yeah. Um, what a shot in the second one. Yeah. What a shot. And how about this, right? We forget this game could have been tied and it was called back from offside. You kind of wonder if when that goal was called back, if that had a mental effect on the avalanche players, because like if that mm-hmm. goal stands, if not, that's not a side, we may be talking about the avalanche again, going into round, uh, round number two. So yeah, uh, again, so, hockey is a crazy sport sometimes, but so, it's Seattle this time and good for them. Certainly agree. Um, I think the Edmonton LA series gave us everything we expected. The Oilers come out of that one. That was pretty yep. cut and dry. Uh, Carolina Islanders, same thing. Um, expected the Hurricanes to come out. They did. Um, the game that ended the first round, uh, the Devils kicked the absolute crap out of the Rangers, yes, winning did. four straight. Um, what a bit of an implosion for that young Rangers team that was veteran laden with some big names on the other side of it, and it really didn't pay I was off. Say so- young until they weren't young anymore <laughs> they're like like there's nobody that's like uh maybe Vinny trocek i guess but guys that um you know that are in like that 27 to like 31 range yeah, yeah there's like it's, e- it's either you, you're still wearing a diaper or you have a cane um well patrick cane but like an actual cane uh yeah. there was no in between on that team um, not okay yeah yeah just <laughs> played out of his mind though in that series and apparently akira schmidt is uh the answer uh <laughs> How about that, right? The decision from Lindy Ruff, because yeah, I mean, it's it's hard, especially when your goalie, which has been solid all regular season, right? And I, we're going to talk about this in the wild too, with goaltending decisions, right? Um, Vanacek just for whatever reason just looked ruffled, right? He just didn't look comfortable those first two games, and when you have an unproven rookie, but at, and and that point is like either you're going to go down three zero. And uh, you're going to give it a different shot or, you know, you might steal a game. Maybe maybe the original thought was to give Anacek a game to break and maybe just have him reset. But then Schmidt comes in and he goes, no, this is my net. I'm not giving it back to you. Right. And mm-hmm. it was the rejuvenation that New Jersey needed. Um, they kind of surprised me a bit because I thought and I think my prediction was the Rangers in this series um, because I thought they were the more veteran group. And New Jersey just didn't have that playoff experience. And, well, Schmidt was the lifesaver, quite literally, because if he was not to what his caliber was, I still think the Rangers take that series. Um, that goaltending change uh, changed the outcome of that entire seven-game. You know, uh, there's another series that had a healthy dose of that on both sides. Um, Linus Olmark playing through an injury, but how about Al- yeah. the Alex Lyon experiment not working? Sergei Bobrovsky comes in. The Florida Panthers from 3-1 down in that series, come back, tied game seven with just over a minute remaining, and they win it in overtime on Carter Verhage's shot. I don't think any of us, I mean, you got to that point where it was 3-1, and you're like, yeah, they might extend it to six, but like the Panthers are done, right? Like, like they're just, yeah. they they barely scraped into the playoffs. That Bruins team is just too good. They've shown they can close all season. What a perfect storm. The Panthers are on to the second round. And funny how when we were predicting that we both, myself included, said the Bruins should win the series. But my concern was, hey, the only the only team that could screw the Bruins was themselves. And it, it kind of felt that way, didn't it, Noah, after the uh, 3-1? And also, not to take any leave from Florida, because I think they didn't just roll over and play dead, right? They, they still grinded it out. And mind you, Game 7, 
They had to come back in the final minute up to nothing. They squander three straight. And mind you, that third goal from Bobrovsky, that rebound was just terrible, right? Yeah. Um, you know, well, that's goal 101, not to throw a rebound right to the stick of the best goal scorer in the league uh, in uh, David Pasternak. But they tie it. They just wouldn't go away. And then a small but an important defensive breakdown in overtime. And Verhage from that faceoff dot, man, what a shot. Just rifled that. Huh. How about the coming out party for Brandon Montour, by the way, just really yeah. defining himself as a steady defenseman. You know, Is it really a coming out party, though? I think maybe in a national scale, yes, but he, he was like that most of the season with yeah, Florida. But, but I feel like this is the first year that he's kind of found that energy. You know what I mean? Where it's yeah. like, like he finally has flourished into that next step. By the way, at the time of recording, the Panthers lead the Maple Leafs 3-2 to two right now. Um <laughs> With eight minutes left uh, in Wouldn't period number three. Like the sixth dimension, if the Stanley Cup final was the Seattle Kraken and the Florida Panthers. You know, yeah. Well, Florida's going to have home ice advantage, apparently. Um, Yeah, the whole yeah. ticket sales thing is, I, I don't know how I feel about that. But I mean, whatever, gamesmanship, I guess, whatever. Um, I, I guess you're getting it done. The Leafs got it done, too, finally. Overtime so game six over the Tampa Bay Lightning. I honestly, I kind of just, I had that feeling. It's like, I know we say every year that this year is the year, but this group just felt like they had the ability to close a little bit differently. And I feel like game five, even, they weren't out of that hockey game. We talked about no, it where... No, they weren't. Uh, you know. And and well, they were built differently, right? Uh, again, the additions of Ryan O'Reilly, the defensive, the smarts, especially defensively, were, right? Were they built for tough? Uh, no, <laughs> they were not, but, uh, and then Samsonoff, right. Uh, you kind of felt like the last few seasons, um, that the Leafs just sort of hung their goaltender out to dry and they wanted him to steal a series. They didn't have to, uh, although Samsonov also made some key saves when he needed to, but I think just overall from a depth up front, this team was more built that still had that scoring touch that still had that firepower but that third and fourth lines, right, really embraced that shutdown role. Again, Ryan O'Reilly, a big piece of that. Uh, again, Tavares, the game winner, right? That's what they brought him in for. Finally, that $9 million a year is paying off in a big moment, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, besides him and Mitch Marner, which undeservedly so, was giving criticism uh, for some of the Leafs early round exits of years past. Uh, they were finally sort of the key difference makers, right? Um, they finally got him to the second round. Now, now that they're there, right now, what, what can they do now? So yeah, Leafs Panthers going on right now, Kraken and stars play later tonight on Tuesday. Uh, and then we flip over to the other two games, of course, uh, the Vegas golden Knights, Edmonton Oilers, and then uh, Carolina and New Jersey doing battle on day number two. So yeah, uh, it's going to be a very interesting second round. We're obviously going to cover it. Um, we won't be covering the wild as far as the second round though. Of course, their first round exit um, revealed oh, that, Eric Sinek had a broken leg in his return. Um, don't really know if Kaprizov was 100%. I think the one thing we can say is, regardless of if he was or wasn't, there's been a lot of criticism for him. Let's be real. He got two and a half, three games before being thrown into the playoffs after coming back from a pretty serious groin injury and missing over a month. I'm not get, making excuses for the man, but that's a tough jump. Um, and then Matt Zuccarello also with a groin injury as well, too. The Wild exited with a whimper, scoring one goal in their last two contests. Um, I'm going to be honest, as much as we should maybe expect the Minnesota sports storyline and want to tell ourselves differently, I didn't think it was going to be this ugly. Uh, just depending, yeah. just based on how the rest of the series went, even game number two, 
I was kind of shocked. I'm going to like even yeah. the Minnesota Wild teams of years past, even the playoff series is I thought we were getting something different. I, I really did. So did I. Um, and I think, can we just say it? Um, I'm, I'm going to Eric Sinek, His absence was felt in yep. multiple areas of the ice. Now, does it come down to one person? No. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you saw it in game five. That to me was a real indication just because uh, Dallas, especially defensively, our four check was non-existent for the last two games. At times, did they have some pressure? Sure. But as far as creating grade A chances, mm. not really much. Um, there was you know, a couple. It's just, you know, I, it's, it's tough. Well, it's, it's tough, tough because had the wild either taken less penalties or been strong on the PK, they would have won this series. They could have won it in five games. They could have. You know, like... And and funny, because last time we recorded, you were a little more bullish on the power play. I wasn't quite as sold on the power play. Um, We both were, shall we say, uh, taking the penalty kill to the dry cleaners of how terrible it was. And ultimately, again, you can't equate one area as the reason, the only reason, but I think it is fair to say that number one, five and five, the wildlife stars were pretty deadlocked right now. I would give a, maybe a slight edge to the wild mm-hmm. special teams though, all Dallas on both sides. Yeah. And it wasn't even close. And in the faceoff dot, if you want to throw that in there too. Yeah. I mean, statistically, like I said, when we talked about it, the power play actually statistically was fairly serviceable, if not better for Minnesota for the first four games. But I mean, it just dis- would say otherwise. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just, it just disappeared, uh, you know, in games five and six, the wild just, they didn't remotely look like themselves. I think the real killer uh, is when you go into game five on the road and you just lay an absolute egg, it's an uncompetitive matchup. And now not only are you scrambling to stay alive in game six, but you're dealing with the pressure that like, two of the three games in Dallas that you had, you dropped absolute goose eggs. And the third one, you probably should have lost it in overtime just based on the way that game finished. I just, I think the mental confidence was kind of shattered a little bit. I, yeah, I, another first round exit, man. I mean, what more can you really, it's, it's, it's tough, but you know, and maybe it's just me and this is going to be maybe a lukewarm take, but this whole first round exit thing, it's, it's old to me. And here's why I say it's old. What are, what are you, a Leafs fan? Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> pretty damn close at this point was as they play a futility. But it, it's it's not fair to keep saying that this team every year is in the first round because every every season's different. And and like you said, I, we felt like, and, and I think we can both agree that if this team was fully healthy, if they had Eric Sinek, if Caprice Huff didn't have that injury and was, you know, shall we say, in game speed if he had caught up i'm still not convinced they didn't have some injury he was playing through doesn't want to admit it i'm still not buying what he says i'm gonna be straight up honest with you but i do feel like the series is different is it does it mean that the result is different i don't know because here's the other thing noah we have got to tip our caps to dallas especially on their own blue line they especially in the power play they made zone entries a living hell uh they were forcing our puck carriers to make decisions before they wanted to um, on the fork check. They gave us the perimeter. I felt like our fourth line you saw, especially games five and six was um, shall we say taking long stretches on the bench. And at the end of it, 
let's put it this way, that that extra, what, 14, 12, almost $13 million in cap that we could utilize hurts. Yeah, it does hurt. And you know what? And it hurts how much Bill Guerin actually did a great job being able to still kind of go pseudo all in a little bit with the space that he had available. Um, you know, Gustav Nyquist, I mean, what a shame what a we can't keep him in a, in a wild sweater. I mean, I would love to see yeah. him return, but it's just not going to happen. Fit. He was a seamless oh, fit. Yeah. Um, well, and, that's, and, that's what good players do, right? Like, yeah. Um, the one good news, and we'll get to that later, is that there are at least one player that is coming back and deservedly so. Um, oh, oh, you mean one of the deadline acquisitions that everyone was yeah. poo-pooing? One of them? The the one that I'm not sure why people are poo-pooing because of the production that he had? Yeah, that one. Oh, um, and especially me. with the the chemistry, right? You can't you can buy a $14 million player if you have the cap space, but you cannot buy chemistry with a line mate that essentially makes that a market inefficiency, four, right? Four words, poor man's Kevin Fiala. Okay, Exactly, cool. right. Um, so I don't know. It's just, it's disappointing, right? I was at game three um, as far as games at the Axel Energy Center. I've been a part as a fan, as a writer um, in both regular season and playoffs. One of the loudest I've ever heard that, Billy, especially when Eric's next name was announced. This is going to be probably a poor comparison, but it felt like the Metrodome because the dome, although it was crappy as the building that was, the one advantage that at that thing was a sound like amplifier. Yeah. It was an amplifier, right? And for a brief moment there, it like it almost gave me chills uh, with how loud that building was when his name was announced. Or granted, his uh, return lasted all of 19 seconds. And I think we all sort of weren't surprised by the actual official announcement, but maybe more surprised that he still tried it for 19 seconds. I mean, my goodness. Um, but yeah, and now it gets tougher, right? Salary cap only is, from what we know, may only go up a million. You add two more million dollars in dead cap for the next two years, so you're still effectively losing a million dollars. Um, you've got to re-sign your best goaltender, who is a um, RFA with arbitration rights. Um, yeah, this is this is going to be tough of an offseason. Well, and uh, I don't know. What do you, you? I don't like, know. What, what What do you think? Is it really as tough as I'm making it out to be? Well, here's my question. Would you like to talk about it? Sure. Why don't we? Let's head on to the extra ice session. And welcome into the extra ice session, episode 160. Nick Max and Noah Grant here to close out the show. The Minnesota Wild offseason. The big news that the Wild just got today on Tuesday. Marcus Johansson, uh, the aforementioned poor man's Kevin Fiala. Two years, four million dollars total for this contract. A great pickup. He's been he was more than adequate down the stretch and has great chemistry with Matt Boldy. So that's a fantastic pickup here. Let's kind of lay out the entire table here. So as usual, Nick, I'm about to monologue. Um the other oh, yeah. that's yeah. that's <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, sit back and grab a pillow, um, I guess. But uh yeah, the, the inkling is Matt Dumbo wants to return. I don't know how feasible it is, but he has mentioned that he'd like to stay. Would he take a home down to hometown discount? Don't know. Is he in Bill Guerin's plans? Don't really know. What we can tell you, Marc-Andre Fleury, one year left on his deal. He wants to stay in Minnesota, finish out that contract, and then reevaluate his career after next season. So cap, cap constraints well known after the Johansson deal today. The Wild have about $8.1 million to re-sign Philip Gustafson, Brandon Duhame, Kalen Addison, um, and potentially Ryan Reeves, who Bill Guerin is very high on. Um, and this is coming all from the athletics. So great job, Michael yep. Russo, um, Joe Smith, guys like that. Um, Garen says 
They don't think they're going to be able to re-sign Matt Dumba, Gustav Nyquist. It was pretty much between Nyquist and Johansson as to who to pick in that. They felt Nyquist might command a little bit more on the market, so they stuck with the guy that was there most of the most of the trade deadline onward. John Klingberg is not expected to be back. Oscar Sunfist, who was a very questionable scratch down the stretch, um, also had some injury too, but um, not expected to re-sign like him. And Sam Steele is a question mark at best, and they also have to decide if Mason Shaw is going to be on IR at least to start the season. Also, keep in mind, Marco Rossi, $864,000 cap hit. Kalen Addison's qualifying offer, $825,000. Reports say Ryan Reeves is hoping for a two-year deal, but the Wild prefer a one-year deal for the 35-year-old. And then Alex Goligoski is also the question mark, $2 million um, for his last year of his deal next season, scratched 36 times this year, um, missed all the games in the playoffs, and he wasn't exactly happy. The meeting with him postseason was very short, according to Bill Guerin. They're going to circle back later. Very potential that $2 million might be freed up, depending on what Alex Goligoski wants to do as well, too, which would give the Wild about $10 million in cap space, all things considered. Uh, isn't going to be easy. Where do you want to start? Uh, let's start with the RFAs. And so I don't know if you're probably going to go with that, but it's because there is one big one that you have to sign first. And I'm surprised that, uh, maybe not as much as I should be, but you'll have Gustafson. just, yeah, I thought Gustafson would be probably number one. Yeah. Um, but possibly because again, he does have arbitration rights, uh, throws an extra wrinkle. So maybe you try, uh, to secure a player that again, that had, instant chemistry with Matt Boldy. Um, again, that line with Eric Sinek was money um, when they were together, when they were all healthy. Um, so I get that part. And at $2 million, you, you can't say no to that. Um, and you hope like Gust- Taki take a bridge deal. You just need to, you need to get him to 2025. I mean, that's just what it comes down to. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing is, you know, the freaking the NHL, right? And I say it that way because the Wild wouldn't be as cap-strap as they are if the pandemic doesn't happen, yeah, let's put it that way, right? I mean, when the league had to essentially do a flat cap, part of I think where Bill Guerin, when he bought up Parisi and Suter, was like, yeah, the money may suck, but it's going to be further enough down the line where the cap should grow enough where it's not going to be as impactful. And then in true Minnesota Wild sports fashion, we get something unbeknownst to the entire world, and then that creates this flat cap environment and- that we're in. And the inconsistency, you know, you look at the kind of the alleviation that a team like New Jersey got with the Ilya Kovalchuk situation, but then for Minnesota, oh, you geez, don't get the yeah. same, you don't get the same kind kind of relief. I think it just right. it, it stings to an extra, extra degree. It does sting, but at the end of the day, that's those are two very different situations too. Where that's a player in Kovalchuk that literally said, "I'm not putting on skates. I'm going overseas." So want want to have a question about cap circumvention for the forty seventh time again, though? Yeah, sure, right. <laughs> um, but either way, uh, Gustafson is going to be the first person that is signed because at the end of the day, uh, they need him. Um, he was the better goaltender. He's the true number one. Mark andre Fleury, you mentioned him earlier, um, has said that he'd be okay in a, in a backup role. He essentially was the backup role, I think, as we headed more into the second half of the season. Um, can still play, uh, apparently just not in game two against Dallas, um, even though that wasn't definitely all of his fault. So side note there. Um, but that is going to tell... Bill Guerin, what he's got left, right? And we still don't know what the salary cap is going to be right now. The NHL has said likely around a million. That is not a firm number yet. That number doesn't get set until June slash July when the league's finances are all finalized for the previous year. So is it possible 
maybe that there's an extra million there, possibly, maybe. Uh, likely, I don't know. But at the end of it, Gustafson's the number one priority. You hope he takes a bridge deal, but his body of work, the wins, losses, the goals against, the save percentage is going to make that a little bit more difficult for the Wild to, shall we say, uh, have a little bit more power at the bargaining table uh, where Gustafson, although he's younger, um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens here. Um, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on this because, again, Gustafson's qualifying offer isn't going to be terribly big. But how long, of- how long is it going to take? That's the thing. Yeah, and yep. you know, you hope it's done sooner rather than later. Uh, the other thing with Gustafson too, I think that Bill Guerin has the bargaining chip is being able to say, kind of like Alex Nedeljkovic a little bit, we're saying like your body of work hasn't been a large enough sample size. We need to see. Yep you know, maybe one more season, give him that bridge deal, get him to 2025. Then you're really going to know. Jesper Wallstad is going to continue to, you know, percolate down in the minors. We'll see how he assimilates maybe after next season, if he's kind of the right-hand man, Augustuson replacing Marc-Andre Fleury in the future. Um, Ryan Reeves is a curious case. I know a lot of people are kind of freaking out about the fact that Bill Guerin wants to resign him. He's going to be like a league minimum guy though. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. not like he's going to be asking for a ton here. So I think I, mm-hmm. I actually thought he was okay down the stretch. A lot of people were saying, well, if he's not a PK guy, though, he's a specialist and he's not serviceable. Like, okay, that's a mm. piss poor argument to say the least. Not every fourth line guy is a PK guy. Like you can still no. be a, a good addition. He's a great locker room guy kind of fills the void that a guy like Matt Dumbo would leave, um, yeah, you know, and, and kind of bridge that he can beat the crap out of anybody. Um, <laughs> and on top of that, was largely serviceable on the fourth line, even if not on a special teams role. Um, I, I think at least even if he's a 13th forward at times, I think he's worth hanging on to um, for that price so point. Um, I'd love to see Oscar Sunquist back, but I think Sunquist and Reeves are kind of two sides of the same coin. Sunquist a little bit more skill-based, obviously, um, and younger, but um, and that yeah. More money, that's the thing. Sam Steele's, I, I really don't know. I, I like how how highly do you feel about Marco Rossi being able to make Do you want my honest opinion? Not yeah. very good, yeah. honestly. Um, because even when he had that game against Chicago right towards the end of the season, I didn't, and, and maybe again, end of the season, maybe there isn't as much jump, but, and, and maybe I'm overanalyzing the hell out of this, but I didn't feel that Rossi showed the type of game that Bill Guerin wanted him to bring, which is go after it. Like this is my puck, and, and sort of like take take control, right? Yeah. Now to Ro- to is it, it's Rossi, right? Remember, it's Rossi is the proper pronunciation. Uh, pronunciation. But All right, we're talking about chicken roast on this. I know. Here we go. Right. Uh, but uh, it, this is a huge year for Rossi, right? It's huge for him and the organization, right? Um, I look at the center pick that was before Rossi. That was Anton Lundell of the Florida Panthers, right? That was the other center that was... And, and Cole Perfetti was right next to him for Cole Winnipeg, Perfetti, too. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I still think Anton Lundell has been the more serviceable NHL-ready center. Um, he's been well in the playoffs. But at the end of it, this is going to be your three in pro. Now, granted, he's had, what do you call it? Uh, the Again, the, the medical side effects of, of yeah. COVID. Yeah, myocarditis. And that's the thing is uh, really the difference maker, people don't realize this, is really going to be who do they bring in down in Iowa? Who's ready to lead that development charge for him? We got to realize too, and we've talked about this, the same conversation went back to Mikhail Granlin, to Yule Eriksson-Eck, 
you know, sometimes it just takes time. I mean, he's so right. young where it's like he might still have two or three years before he finally kind of fits that mold of an everyday NHLer here. AKA Tage Thompson. Yeah. Will yeah. the wild be that patient with him? I think they should. Um, I, I think they have to be because yeah. again, they, it's not like they have dollars that they can spend. If anything, R- Rossi is their, I don't want to characterize a player like this, but he's kind of like a safety valve, right? Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, next year and the year after that, you know, it's the worst of the cap strap years, 14.7 million, almost $15 million that the Wilder are unable to spend because of those recapture penalties from the buyouts. But I know, and maybe this is the bigger question, Noah. Does Rossi just need a full season in the NHL just to try to figure it out? Because uh, you saw Bill, the last two years, right? Yeah, Bill Guerin, Bill, Guerin years. Has, Bill Guerin has said otherwise. He said, actually, we don't really want to throw him into the fire for the sake of throwing him into the fire. Um, so but it here's feels my like... argument, right? And, and, and I'm not trying to cut you off or anything, but he's had two years where his production, his point value was almost a point-per-game player. So, yeah. and it goes back to the same conversation we have with Shane, right? Which is what is actually more beneficial to him, right? Is it in the minors? Is it in, uh, he had the juniors eligibility. Um, well, you know, the is sticking with the he's, big club. He's not a bottom six or fourth line guy. And I think for Minnesota right now, they're not deep, but they're set up just enough to where at best he'd be a third line guy. And I just don't know if maybe he just doesn't thrive in that environment. Um, you know, especially like he did in the preseason where he was playing a lot kind of an elevated role, got a lot of opportunities. Again, it's preseason, so a lot of other pieces to that too. But, you know, and I think it's the same conversation we're having with Kalen Addison is I think, I, I don't want to say we're in a wait and see mode, but I think 2025 continues to be the goal where I think at that point, you continue to see how those guys develop, how they potentially assimilate into the big club. And I think that's the point where you're going to see Bill Guerin say, okay, who are these young guys and veteran guys who are getting the job done, who needs to kind of jump shift? And I think 2025 is going to be the defining point of, are we a couple pieces away and now we have the opportunity to get them? Or are we at that point where we need to start kind of offloading some guys and really kind of rebuilding this core and saying like Marco Rossi, Marco Rossi, sorry, maybe isn't at that point right now. Maybe we need to start looking at other avenues in the center position and move away from that. I can tell you exactly what they are doing because you already said it. And to me, it's not a question of they're going to be questioning themselves. They know exactly what they have to do and they're already doing it because I actually disagree with your point. I actually don't think they are in that same sort of, you know, linear path here. Cause here's why Kirill Kaprizov, he will be one year from a UFA status after these contracts come off the books to go down to 1.6 million per year. It's essentially a wash right at that point, but you've already seen it with the lockup of Jared Spurgeon, Jonas Brodin, Eric Sinek, now Freddie Goudreau, Matt Boldy, right? Bill Gaynor's already telling us this is the core that he yeah, wants. Sorry. Let me clarify. I didn't mean it in the sense of guys that are already there. Um, or no, maybe guys, maybe guys that are expiring contracts, but like these guys that aren't part of that core roster. Oh, it's, that. It's, yeah. But the, the thing that you have to understand is they do want that flexibility after that is they want to be in a position where they only want to be able to fill in a couple pieces. If they come out of this cap constraint era and they don't have a good enough core where you just need an extra couple pieces where then you're going to have a big checkbook you can write. 
not only because you're going to have that money to spend again, but ideally the salary cap situation is going to be better too, where you can now go out and maybe get that big expensive center, maybe two of them, right? Where that fills out to be a Stanley Cup contender. That's where this is going. This That's where it has to go. And I think that's why when you look at guys like Marco Rossi, yes, you have to be patient a bit, but at the same time, I think these years are actually more important than if they didn't have these cap constraints. I really don't. Um, because I think you're going to have to make decisions. I think Kalen Addison is a question mark. Again, he was non-existent in the lineup the last, what, quarter of the season. Um, and I'm not taking anything away from these players because I think in a different organization, they're handled quite differently. I think they're like, just stay patient. They're 21, 22 years of age, right? The Wild with Kaprizov and with some of these players, they put themselves in the spot. It's not an easy spot. So to me, it's not quite as simple as that. And I do think that these seasons mean more to Rossi and possibly Addison if he's in traded. I still think there's a chance he's traded. Yeah, but with the departure of Matt and Dumba, we might see him in the lineup more than you think. The other thing that uh, has also been expressed from Bill Guerin is that Brock Faber sounds like he's going to be an everyday NHLer, at least to start next season. Um, I think the ultimate question boils down to this with all these changes. Should we be surprised if the Minnesota Wild do not make the playoffs next season? No. I agree. No. It's, and honestly, you're you're sort of, it's sort of a good thing. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong. I'd rather lose in six than not make the playoffs at all. At least there's some intrigue there. You got except for this draft class. (laughs) Right. Um, But at the end of the day, right, you know, you you weren't ever going to be Bedard, Fantilli, you know, Mitchkoff type territory, but this is a deep draft, right? Um, Who's to say you can't package something to move up in the draft? They won't, but never say never, right? Um, And at the end of it, I think the Wild would, gosh, this is going to be scorching hot around around the, the airwaves out there. It might be beneficial for them to do that. Now, the problem mm-hmm. is that if you do that, does that mean that Mark Andre Fleury that probably would like to be in a playoff contender? Does that mean you get to trade him? Does that open up some salary yeah. cap? That well, way? The, the bigger fear is does it scare away a guy like Kirill Kaprizov going down the line? And that's, and that's the flip yeah. side of this is why he signed these many players, right? And to also have a big checkbook is. He's indicating to Kaprizov, we, we're a good team. Screw the cap constraints. We can still be competitive. And, and maybe we haven't said this enough. The fact that they were still fairly competitive while being restrained by $13 million the last couple of seasons. A couple kind of points out of winning the Central? A miracle, right? Yeah. Um, imagine if they had a couple of other top... I mean, you could buy two top six Fords with that easily, hmm. right? With that amount of money that they couldn't use. Um, who's to say it, right? Now, Oli will be seasoned. Eric Sinek, we know what he is. He's a bona fide player. You're going to have Brock Faber, Jonas Brudin. Your core is going to be there, right? And ideally, if you do get that, shall we say, development of Rossi, maybe Addison, right? And then you throw in some of their drafts, some of their trades, and then you get a deep pocketbook. This team is positioning itself well to in that when 2025 rolls around, hmm. This team could be in a really scary good position to be like, here's my chips and here we go. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, and, I, and they have to, like you said, because of Kaprizov, because you're going to have to convince him that he can win a Stanley Cup here. And it's going to take a very strategic plan to get there. And I think, again, with these rookies, part of why I think it's, as more, it's more fragile than normal is because of that reason. Yeah, no, I... It's an interesting time to be a Minnesota Wild fan. I yes. think that's, that's the easy way of putting it here. Of course, the second round of the NHL playoffs continues on. We are going to cover that. Uh, we're going to circle back to some other topics, though. Uh, we'll keep an eye on player moves, obviously. Any news that we hear related to St. Cloud, of course, and the Wild, obviously. We're also at some point probably going to circle back to both Arizona and the Atlanta bid. Uh, and and not bid, yeah. but... Um, the per- it, well, the, it's sort of a bid because... Hmm. It is an arena the, district. The the finger majig. Um, we'll, yep. we'll we'll circle back and talk about those sorts of things too. So uh, a lot of topics that we've kind of pushed off for a little bit, or kind of waited to hear some more developments. We're going to kind of talk about those as we go through uh, into the month of May. Crazy. We are at the precipice of summer, so to speak, and unfortunately, the Minnesota Wild are at the driving range right now. But it is what it is. So with that being said, for episode one sixty and Nick Maxson, I'm Noah Grant, and we will see you soon in the den. Timer coming, they score! Ripped in! A bomb from Perrix! So Dana Rasmussen fires and she scores! Dana Rasmussen for the Huskies alongside. Dwayne Kaprizov in for a chance to win it! He scores! Cathedral is now 42.6 seconds away from wrapping up the school's first ever title.